We continue our series of uh, listening carefully to the letter of James and that we might live confidently, listen and live. We're in James chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, just this last week or so, um, heard an interview with Philip Yancey, a Christian author you've probably heard of. He's in his early 70s now. He's been writing for decades, some 25 books or so. But he just last year released his memoir, uh, digging into his life all the way back to his childhood. And the reason he waited so long is there were some things in there that he really just didn't feel comfortable sharing because uh, it makes his family situation and his parents, especially his mom, uh, look not so good. Uh, growing up near Atlanta, he tells of his exposure to uh, racism in, in his background. He is uh, a white guy, uh, Caucasian. Growing up in Atlanta, and he tells in particular of in his college years in the late 60s, at the peak of the Civil Rights Movement, the church that he attended and his family had been going to uh, had significant issues. During the Civil Rights Movement, they posted deacons at the doors, and they turned away any people of color who tried to enter in, calling them troublemakers, based on the color of their skin. He said they softened it up a bit over time, and they even let students from a nearby African-American Bible college attend. And one of those students, in particular, liked the church. He liked the Bible teaching, and asked if he could come, and they said, yeah, you could sit over there. Sound familiar if you've read James? And this student in particular liked it so much, and he had been there for a while, and he said, really, I would like to join this church. This African-American young man asked to join this, I was going to say predominantly, but essentially all white church. In the late 60s, they had a big meeting and seemed like a fine young man. He's going to Bible college. They debated it and discussed it among the leadership, and unanimously they said, no. You can't join our church. The young man, his name was Tony Evans. Still is Tony Evans. Dr. Tony Evans who took a church of about 10 people in the Dallas area and over 40 years of ministry has grown it into this massive church. Uh, a man whose Bible teaching and preaching is a blessing and whose really his only shortcoming is not the color of his skin but the fact that he's a Cowboys fan. <laughs> Do you remember that, Pastor Dave, when he gave us a hard time? He came and spoke at a pastor's event uh, about five years ago here and he just... He let his Cowboys fanness just out all over the place. I've never heard a bunch of pastors boo a, a fellow believer. But that fits with our passage as well. In fact, is the, the potential that we all have for this faulty thinking, and, and we'll dig into that here in this passage, this very large church, or this, uh, this, it was a large church actually that, that uh, Philip Yancey was a part of, and we can all say that's, you know, that's just bad thinking. That's just not the way it should be. That's not how God wants us to interact, to, to be partial based on external, surfacey things. Uh, we can see that. 
And in fact, it just echoes so much with what James speaks about here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 of his letter. And that was not that long ago. Right? Tony Evans and Philip Yancey are born the same year. They're, they're this, essentially the same age, still living. And when those events happened, I was even living. This is within my lifetime, as young as I am. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> and, and, you know, the church has made progress, but the fact <laughs> that what happened in Atlanta in the late 60s and what happens off and on in the intervening time since and has happened for a long time, it was necessary to be taught against and to be instructed to God's people 2,000 years ago. And James speaks the truth to us. And you can point to good things, and you can point to bad things, and what it says is, you know what? We all have an opportunity to grow. To, to, to more fully embrace what it means to have faith in Jesus. And so as we look here at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, we're going to find some help. And hopefully be challenged and comforted by God's inspired, infallible, life-changing word. Listen with me. James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This is God's Word. Father, we ask you to bless the hearing, the reading, the study of your Word. Let it be powerful and effective in transforming our hearts more and more to fully embrace you, Jesus we pray in your precious name. Amen. So the, the question is, what distinctions do you make? What, what underlying attitudes impact how you treat others? Or just maybe even how you think about other people or talk about them? We can all see, I hope, that you know, the actions of a church of Jesus Christ that would exclude someone based on the color of their skin is very problematic and sinful. Uh, 
So easy to point the fingers you know, that way and say, oh, I would never be like that. But if we really understand, if we listen carefully to what James is calling us to here, we're going to see we all struggle. Just like so much in, in this letter of James, he, he just like puts out the vision for us and then says, and you know what? You, you, you can't get there. But you know, get there. Oh, but you can't get there. And just to, to draw us to this place of humility before the Lord, which is actually where we begin to really grow, where we can see progress. Because the, that question of what distinctions do you make, it, it hits every one of our hearts. And we all, when we're honest, we recognize we make distinctions and we judge people, we treat them based on outward appearances and surfacy differences. I remember a man at our annual denominational meeting, this is years ago, oh, 15, 16 years ago or something, and he, he stood up for several years in a row, and at that point in the ways that we got together for our denomination, you could just make a motion at the beginning of the meeting, and everybody there, a thousand of people, you know, a thousand delegates or whatever, would vote on it. And this man got up several years in a row and essentially asked us, uh, present a resolution to ex- that we would exhort all of our church members to pull their children out of public schools and put them into private Christian schools or, worst case, homeschool them. That's kind of the way it sounded to me. I might have been biased, but uh, year after year. And, and he made some compelling points about problems with the public school system. But the thing that kept hammering me as I sat there pastoring a rural church among people with about no money and no opportunity, and as we had a Christian school that was really expensive, how can you do that? How can you're just trying to put food on the table? How could I possibly exhort someone to pull their kids out of public school and put them in a school they can't afford or homeschool them when they don't have time or resources or any network? It just seemed so burdensome and cumbersome, and I couldn't get past that. And I said to myself, as I looked at this guy who looked just like me, wearing you know, khaki pants and a polo shirt, maybe a sport coat or something, and I just said, you know, this guy needs to get out of his upper middle class suburban uh, bubble he's living in. And I, I began to look down on his narrow-mindedness, his lack of insight. And I talked about him to my friends as we gathered later, and I never talked to him. I don't even know if he was a pastor or, or an elder. I don't even know what church he was in. I, and what I was doing, essentially, brothers and sisters, is exhibiting personal favoritism. I was a judge with evil motives or the way I would translate that is more like faulty thinking. The word there for motives is thought process, reasoning. Faulty reasoning, bad reasoning, evil, harmful, however you want to unpack that. That's what was going on. The partiality or personal freedom is is faulty thinking that comes from a place where the heart is not fully holding faith in Jesus. It's inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't fit. And it could be that partiality based on skin color. That was the, the symptom of Philip Yancey's church that would not let Tony Evans join. It could be uh, this faulty thinking to condemn someone for lack of insight, and we sure have that now, which is a characteristic of the woke movement that would condemn you for your lack of insight rather than dialogue and discuss. It's, it's a faulty thinking that we all encounter. That they're not like us. They don't see things like us. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They're not educated like us. They don't have the resources we have. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, that partiality that would judge someone on these surfacey distinctions is what James has in view as he describes this faulty thinking, this uh, judging within, when the Lord calls us to a living faith. A living faith is incompatible with such judgmentalism, with that faulty thinking. The Lord calls us to a living faith. That's our first main point here, the, the, the living faith. As you look at verse 1, again, where James says in chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The, the word for favoritism there, personal favoritism, is, is literally uh, uh, a couple of Greek words that it seems like the early church coined from the Hebrew. This Greek, it's uh, essentially receiving the face. It's to judge by, a, a, you know, it's, it's about what you look like. And he says, if you're doing that, you're not holding the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus. That that doesn't work with faith in Jesus. And he calls him the glorious Lord Jesus, or the, the Lord of glory in verse 1. You know, it is a living faith because it is in a living Jesus. One who fully fulfilled what it means to be a human being, to bear the image of God as he came God and man together. Created in God's image, demonstrating to us what it looked like to be a perfect human being. Who never judged based on appearances. Who never sinned. And who is at the same time this Lord of glory. This one who came from heaven to earth, who was rich beyond measure and made himself poor to walk among us, to live for us, to die on our behalf. This one. And if, if our faith, if we, are, if we have faith in this glorious Lord Jesus, it, it would mean that his presence, the, the weight of his presence and who he is would would. would impact us. That, that's the sense of the word glory. It has this uh, heaviness, this weight, this presence. And what it means, in, in essence, is not that it would be an external presence, but that it would be felt within our hearts. That what 
our living faith is not just it's in this living Jesus, but it's about lining up our hearts with Jesus. That He would come and work in our hearts for His glory. And that would include our thinking, our reasoning. It would include our affections, our desires. It would include our will and what we do. All of those things coming together to clean us up. You know, these evil thoughts, evil motives, this evil reasoning, it's, it's what Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder. Jealousy. Out of your heart. So even if you think about the ways that we are partial and prejudiced and judgmental, it's really not about the people around us. It's about what's going on in our own hearts. We make these distinctions. And there's a sense where that distinctions, he says, among yourselves in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves if you judge someone based on their clothing? The, the, that could be translated, and I would lean towards this, that it, it's actually an issue of integrity. It's the same word that appeared back in James chapter 1 when he said you should ask without doubting. It's that doubting word, and it can have a couple of different senses, but it seems to be pointing more not that you're making distinctions among yourselves, but that you are having doubts within yourself, that you are acting without integrity. Because if you hold faith in our Lord Jesus, you're not going to judge based on external appearances. They're inconsistent. To, to, to get, if Jesus is in here, he's coming out in any number of ways. And, and that issue of lining up our hearts with what God wants is a common biblical theme. Jesus is, in a sense, a spiritual chiropractor. And his work is lining that up. Conforming us, is another way the Bible puts it, to his image. Becoming more like him. And so the question then becomes, how do we change? How do we live that out? Because if you're here today, chances are that's what you want, right? You want to have a living faith in Jesus. You don't want to be like them. <laughs> you want to be faithful. What we need is to see things differently and, and to live differently, not just in our actions, but the motivation needs to change. And that's why James tells us the story uh, of contrasting living faith to a lingering favoritism in verses 2 through 4. This story he tells, which uh, whether or not it you know, is expressly and explicitly what happened in that church, clearly they have related issues that this story could fit them. He says in verse 2 about this lingering favoritism, verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Let's just stop there for a second. Uh, the gold ring, unlike us where we all wear gold rings usually for a marriage, a wedding band, among other rings for decorations and just to look nice. Uh, back then, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, when he came home, one of the things that his father said to him was what? Put on the best robe, dress him up, and put a ring on his finger. 
The ring very often had a seal, a signet, and they would use it to, to impress in the wax of a document. It was, a, it was what someone with status had. If you had a ring with a seal on it, you had to have stuff, and you had to be someone who's sending letters and signing things. You have to be somebody important. And a gold ring is even that much more important. Uh, some actually classes in, in the Greek society, Greco-Roman society of that day, were differentiated by that. If you were in a certain class of people, you had a special ring. That's, that's the sense of the ring here. And dressed in fine clothes, more literally, shining, bright. The same word, radiant, is used of the angels uh, that appear throughout the New Testament here and there. Uh, it's, it's a contrast to the poor man with his dirty clothes, which is actually you know, more like grimy, filthy, fine, resplendent, glorious, radiant clothing, clean. You know, people didn't have washing machines and stuff, right? To have clean clothes meant you had to be living a certain way not living on the street, not poor, you were elevated status. All of that, you get the contrast. It really doesn't take much. Verse 3, if those two people come in, there's a rich man essentially and a poor man, verse 3, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit here by my footstool. Uh, right, pause for a second. The, the paying special attention, if you, if you kind of hone in, if you look intently at, if you give special attention to, and you, is that not what you do, right? Someone who looks nicer and seems like they have a lot to offer, you're going to pay more attention to them. And what do you do with the homeless person, with the dirty person, with the smelly person, right? You kind of, you don't even look. You look away. You don't want to deal. And you say, you stand over there or you could sit you know, down, down here. This distinction, this, this treatment, this is what we do. And it contrasts with a living faith in Jesus. But we all have this lingering favoritism. Verse 4 if those things happen, the rich man, this man, and you say this, you say that, verse 4, then have you not made distinctions among yourselves? This partiality between the rich materially, economically, financially, and the poor, clothing, resources. Have you not made distinctions within yourselves? Are you not then essentially acting out of line with your faith in Jesus? Because this Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, that you might become rich through him. This Jesus who left heaven to come to earth to not only be rejected, but to be killed and remain under the power of death that he might rise victorious, 
and that he might not just then stay in heaven and say, look at me, aren't I great, but would send forth the Holy Spirit to unite people who were his enemies to himself, that we were dead, he might make us alive, and we were his enemies, he might reconcile us. While we were yet enemies, he died for us, that this one might come. Which leads to the third point. If you think about the three aspects, this living faith and the lingering favoritism that we all battle and struggle against, the way that it changes is to recognize that. And then to look to our loving Father and recognize how it doesn't make sense. And, and you can recognize it doesn't make sense to, to live this way because you have the Spirit of God in you. And this is the way God works, right? He, some reason, man, he zaps some stuff and you don't have trouble with it, but then there's other stuff that just lingers. And it seems to me it's a very common thing for us to linger with prejudice and distinctions on surfacey things. And it's about impossible for a church like us, as diverse as we are, to, to not bump into that. Because there's a history among the people groups that we represent. One of the most obvious ones is the history of Western, Caucasian, European folks enslaving and exploiting African folks. But there's also histories among different African folks, and there's histories among Indians and Pakistanis, and then Indians and Africans, and various things, right? There is history among different European countries. There is history right now that we're seeing lived out between Russia and Ukraine, which is perplexing to us on the outside. Those kind of things, that's what's at war in every one of us. And the way we will change is to honestly acknowledge that and to look at our loving Father and say, this does not make sense. And that's what, that's what James does here in verses 5 through 7. Essentially, he just he, he pulls the, the Nathan the prophet to David thing and says, this, like, this doesn't make sense. This is you. You're the man. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. You know he's going to go for it right there because he reminds him. He affirms the relationship with them and says, look, we're brothers. We're family. I love you. In fact, you're my beloved brethren. Listen. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He doesn't say he promised it to those who jump through the hoops, who look the right way, who have enough money. He said the kingdom is promised and especially seems to be present among the poor who understand they don't have anything to offer and they need Jesus and he comes and he meets them there. Is that not who God has seemed to share his abundant blessings with is the poor of this world, making them rich in faith? You know, he says something similar back in chapter 1. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like a flowering grass, he will pass away. 
James is saying, look, there's a great blessing to being poor. You see things, and you, you it, it, it's, I can't remember the expression. There is some quote that's really clever, but I can't think of it, about when you get more stuff, you know, there's more stuff to worry about. You have to put alarms on it, and you have to lock it and keep it safe. You need a bigger place and more security, right? If you've got nothing, man, there's, you just got you. And there's a, there's, a, there's a rest in that in a lot of ways. And if we, if we become more like that kind of people, who can, whether we have a lot or a little, we can hold it loosely and recognize what's most important is not those material possessions, but this relationship with the Lord who accepts us, regardless of our social standing, if we love him. You know, he's promised these things to those who love him. What does he say next? Verse 6. Verse 5. God chose the poor of this world to be rich, right? Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. You have dishonored the poor man. You have devalued. You have lowered his price. This one whom God has valued. This one whom God has given the benefit of eternal life and riches beyond measure. And you've said, sit over here on the floor. Or you said, go over there and you barely look at him. This one. God has valued and you have devalued. You know, there's a place, in other words, for theology here. To bring God into, if you want to be free from your prejudice and your, your biases and your favoritism, if you want to break free from cultural traditions of animosity towards other people and devaluing, the place to start is with a the theology that says that God created all in His image. And that every single human being is worthy of honor and respect and love. That's profound. That's how God views people. And then he, James says, look, it, it, so you're not acting in line with God. Who, who you understand God to be when you make those kind of distinctions and discriminations? And then he continues, verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man. And then he says, look, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? You know, how do they treat you? You're, you're, you're sucking up to them and giving them preferential treatment, and they're going to be abusing and exploiting you. What are you doing? That makes no sense from practical human horizontal terms. What are you thinking? He doesn't stop there either, right? He says in verse 6 and verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That is, the rich. Don't they, the sense must be of, of mocking you, you know, Christian, making fun of you and Christ. Some association there. This, these last two questions, you know, you think about it, what he's saying is, how do the rich treat you they abuse you, oppress you, exploit you. How do they treat God? Will they blaspheme him and his name? And the point is not to beat up on the rich, but to examine our own hearts and to say, this doesn't make sense. Why am I favoring this person? You know, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful rebuke in that. 
favoritism doesn't make sense. Prejudice and bias doesn't make sense theologically. God values human beings, period. He offers them the greatest blessings. Favoritism doesn't make sense relationally. You know, you serve God and you're becoming like Him. His values should be becoming like your values should be becoming his values. His values should be becoming your values. And, and yet you do this. Favoritism doesn't make sense just experientially because the people you tend to favor, they'll turn on you. They'll exploit you and use you. It's a call, in other words, to, to check your heart and say, am I, am I lining up with God? Am I treating people the way God treats them? Am I viewing them the way God views them? And when you, when you start thinking along those lines, you realize that God does not accept or favor people because of what they have or who they are. God is not a respecter of persons. God is not partial. But God does favor people. God does love people, extend grace to people. And it has absolutely nothing to do with whether they deserve it or not. In fact, the playing field, as someone has said, at the foot of the cross is level. We all don't deserve it. That place of humility is the ultimate starting point to say, you know what? That, that what God does in extending grace is extend grace. That what God does in valuing you and giving you anything at all is to say, God is a giver. God is a lover. God is kind and merciful. And he knows more about your sin and brokenness than you do. And he still treats you with grace and mercy. And sometimes that means he's going to rebuke and confront. Sometimes it means he's going to provide abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And so where is it going to go then for you as you feel this conviction, as you realize how many times and in what ways you have expressed a partiality, a, a distinction on a surface issue. You've talked about those people. You've felt proud and condemned others. Where does that leave you? Yet again, it leaves us with chapter 4, verse 6. He gives greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's where, that's where a living faith comes from. That humbled place. That's where you will push out those lingering favoritisms and, and biases. 
And that's where you will experience this loving Father. Only in that place. Only in that place of humility. Only in that place that says, you know what, I, I have sinned. I have judged my brother. I have judged people I don't know. And Lord, forgive me. Lord, you give grace. Make me a person who extends it to other people. Lord, even in this congregation, I have talked about them and those people, whether it's old people or young people, black people or white people, any shade in the middle, rich, poor, north, south, whatever the distinctions are, when we engage in them, James tells us it's faulty thinking. And he would have us to be transformed from the inside out, from the heart, by the glorious Lord Jesus. And that's what he is doing. You know, we, we wouldn't exist unless God was doing that. Right? There is such beauty in the grace that I have seen extended from one another in this place over big things and little things. I have recently heard conversations where someone, thankfully not me for a change, said some really stupid and hurtful things to someone. And I talked to the one who was the subject of these inane comments. And they were so gracious about it. Do you realize that as, as you are able to, to, to engage this living faith, you can, you can have that perspective that can be hurt by things that are said and also acknowledge God is greater than that. That God has loved me and I can, I can deal with this. I can extend love. It's a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine if we all grew just a little bit more in that? If we were all a little less sensitive to the biases we experience from others? This is, this is a challenge in our day and age. It's especially a, a challenge for younger people as you're growing up in this, this, this culture that says you, you, you need to find a safe space. You need to protect yourself. You, you need to make sure everyone around you treats you the way you want to be treated. It's a challenge. What the Bible is calling us to is, is a measure of grace that doesn't withdraw, that doesn't put up barriers, that continues on. That's what your Lord does with you and I, right? He's not giving up on you. He's not giving up on me. He's not giving up on that other knucklehead who said that thing. He has not given up. And he is, in fact, working. And the way we overcome is through the fullness of faith in him. Lift your heart to Jesus. Humble yourself before him. Own your own part. Forgive those who have sinned against you. And that, that will be powerful. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Oh, you, you love us because you love us. You are a person who loves. You are a Savior who has saved us because you are merciful. You are a just God as well 
and you've forgiven us. You bring that all together, Jesus, in your own person and work, perfectly just, perfectly merciful. And as we'll read in coming weeks here in James, it is mercy that triumphs over judgment. Thank you for that. Let it triumph over our own hearts, over our own relationships, over our biases and prejudices, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.